I guess we're becoming more and more interested in, in uh, foreign languages. Uh, America is, for many reasons, some quite obvious. And uh, Sunday through Tuesday, December 27th to 29th, Northwestern University will be sponsoring, or rather will be uh, hosting, the 74th Annual Meeting of the Modern Language Association of America. We're pleased to have as our guest uh, more than a man interested in modern language, Howard Vincent, who is chairman of the Language, Literature, Philosophy Department of the Illinois Institute of Technology, who is known as a Melville scholar as well. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Vincent, uh, what, before we talk of your interest in Melville and your findings and your trying outs, we'll come to that, <laughs> what of uh, the Foreign Language, or rather the Modern Language Association? Modern Language Association is a uh, rather large organization composed mainly of teachers of um, languages, including the English language, primarily the English language, college teachers primarily, also in the United States. It has about 10,000 members, and at this meeting in Chicago, I think they will have about 3,500 people in attendance, uh, learned papers, uh, people who are specialists in, let us say, the dative in Anglo-Saxon or something like that can can come and give a paper and, and have discussion with uh, colleagues who understand them. It's a chance for specialists to speak to specialists. But there also are these larger meetings, these general meetings, this foreign language uh, pitch that they're on now. Mm -hmm. Naturally, America, as you said, uh, Studs, has become such a world center. We have become aware that if we're going to be a world power, we've got to be uh, linguistically much more sophisticated so that the increase in the study of foreign languages which has taken place in the last five or seven years is a, a natural phenomenon and yet the Modern Language Association has been uh, foresaw this and has been hard at work at, uh, organizing this kind of program trying to push it and extend it so this meeting we have here on the foreign language program is very important although it may be for serious-minded people still we are all implicated in, in it eventually if we become interested in the world those scholars will be reading exchange Papers. I believe there are two, uh, two meetings that are open to, uh, the, to open the public. public. Yes, and one involves the very point you just made: the importance of uh, becoming more and more sophisticated linguistically. Yes. That's Tuesday night, uh, December 29th. Is a is a. That's right. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday afternoon. Yes. At, the, uh, at 2, two p.m. Yes. Is uh, and several of the speakers. Do you know Donald Walsh? Uh, yes, he's been uh, director of the program for the Modern Language Association the program, very active in in organizing it. And uh, I think that they're going to have, um, let me see, uh, who are some of the other Franklin speakers? Murphy. Of Franklin the Murphy. Well, all of these people have been uh, greatly concerned in the problem, and they will report on, uh, they will be reporting on developments in foreign language study, the, the spread of foreign language. And the, the other meeting, however, the meeting on Monday night, Monday night, is a more general kind of meeting. I uh, think that, on that Monday night too, the uh, Professor Parker speaking on the professor and George, the profession and George. I suppose that's something about the relation of the specialist, the college teacher, and the ordinary person, and uh, that he will be very urbane and interesting. That anybody who wants well, to come to that perhaps we'll discuss breaking down the barriers that separate that's the two. Right, that's right. Breaking down the barriers between the egghead and the man mm -hmm. on the street, sort of thing which uh, I think they're false barriers. Uh, they are, there, there are real differences, but there needn't be barriers. There needn't be. No. And what of this, uh, there's a second speaker, uh, Hans Holthusen. Oh, he's a, dis a very distinguished German poet and critic who is, uh, has been a professor at Northwestern and is coming back here uh, mainly for this meeting and to give this address. And, uh, a concept of human destiny in Western literature. That's, <laughs> that's rather large, yeah, isn't it? It's not? a big chunk to bite off. <laughs> yes, it is. So that's Monday night, December 28th, yeah. 
and uh, the importance of uh, foreign language in the American program will be Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday afternoon, afternoon, December 29th. Yeah. They're both open to the public at, at uh, the Palmer House. At the Palmer the House, that's at right. At the Palmer House. And, and there's no charge of any sort for that sort of thing. The other meetings are close to registrants, although, after all, if a person was really serious, he could pay a dollar and register and go to all the meetings. Well, Howard Vincent, I'd never met you before, but I had heard of you, and I'm delighted that you're here because I think we should know more, too, about some of our, our local scholars, often... Uh, Chicagoans uh, pay tribute to others, and justifiably, but here in our own region are men who are authorities, truly so, in fields that are so rich in what they have to, the fields are rich and yet unplumbed. Now, you are the Melville scholar. Herman, we, we think of <laughs> Melville, we think of Moby Dick, and we think of a man who had been neglected for so long, hadn't he? Yes, he had been neglected. Uh, he died in 1891, and at the time of his death, the New York newspaper, one New York newspaper, I think, carried about a, uh, well, about four inches and said he was an author of some sea stories. <laughs> and in 1912 or 13, when Barrett Wendell wrote his, uh, professor of Harvard, wrote his history of American literature, he gave a short paragraph to Melville saying he was an author of several sea yarns. That's and that's about all. Several sea yarns. And no, no more significance than that. And it wasn't until 1920 or 21 that uh, a biography came out about him, Raymond Weaver's biography, and that started things off. And then in 1928, Lewis Mumford wrote a, a study which was in the uh, Literary Guild selection, and then people began to be aware. In the 1930s, scholars began to go to work, and then in the 1940s, this thing became a flood tide. And uh, Somewhere in the 40s that the researches yeah, began. Yes, uh, the research really began to accumulate. Uh -huh. And now there is a tremendous body of work on them and so that assessments can be made, are being made, and have been made. And we now, of course, all don't have to fight the battle of recognize Melville. He's recognized. Is there another reason, Howard, for the re aside from the Weaver and Mumford biographies, is there another reason why Melville today more than ever? Oh, yes. Uh, there are, this is so complicated and uh, profound that it's hard to uh, touch on briefly, but it, it is Melville anticipates 20th century psychological, spiritual, intellectual trends, drives. If you want to talk, for instance, one of the big kicks of our time is our awareness of existentialism. Now, whatever the misrepresentations of existentialism, certainly an existential point of view is one of the, one of the, uh, one of the keys to uh, s um, the world of the last 150 years. Uh, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, um, uh, William James is even an existentialist. And you could argue, for instance, that uh, Moby Dick's an existential book. Whatever the term may mean, it's too much to go into. But anyhow, he, he fits in with interest. And he strikes a chord in everybody's uh, heart and mind. The symbols of Moby Dick, for instance, uh, people, once they get on the hook on Moby Dick, can't cannot get off. And it's because of psychological and social. He anticipated our thinking, our feeling. Henry Murray, the great psychiatrist at Harvard, said that Melville anticipated Freud and Jung by 50 years in his depth psychology. You were touching on the illusions, the many, many illusions in Moby Dick. Uh, the work Melville did, aside from his own travels on a whaling boat. He was a great reader uh, and a great traveler. And, so he, and everything he read and everything he did in traveling became a part of him and became transformed and eventually came out in some way uh, disguised or openly in his uh, writing. And after all, having been a whale man for 18 months, he, uh, and then having been uh, a uh, prisoner of um, 
South Sea cannibals, beautiful, handsome South Sea cannibals, and having been on a United States man of war, having been in the Sandwich Islands in Tahiti in those interesting years, 1840 to 43, he came home and wrote about it. His South Sea memories, aren't they also the memories of a man who lives... Uh, so he didn't he live sort of a circumscribed life for a while, and apparently yes, he was thought a, of the dream world, the other world. Uh, a New England, a New England, uh, a New England young man, or a New England an- ancestry, also New York mm-hmm. state ancestry. Mm-hmm. Very fine, uh, very uh, first families from New York and New England. But out of that rather strict Calvinistic and broke, broke uh, yes, his father went bankrupt, so he went on a whale ship to the South Seas, and uh, he had these incredible experiences, and he came home, the result was Taipei and Omu and so Thinking on. of Taipei, and also uh, your reference to his popularity today and the reasons for it, isn't it also the idea that in uh, thinking of this other world, this other life, uh, a certain uh, a dreaminess, a freedom Yes, oh yes, have, oh yes, know. and this is, of course, what the uh, 20, 19th and 20th century Western yeah. civilization longed for, and he, he was the first person to write a novel uh, which it was a literary uh, had literary excellence, and at the same time used made capital of all this uh, mm-hmm. South Sea experiences, which everybody was interested in 1840, but no one went there except the sailors. He uh, here was a literary man who wasn't a literary man when he went there, but he came back and became a literary man out of those experiences, out of his own talent. Well, your work on Melville, the trying out of Moby Dick, <laughs> the title itself, you, you, you call it the trying out yes. of Moby Dick. Yes, the title is the best thing in the book, maybe. No, no. What do you mean by the, the well, trying out? Well, rendering lard, you know, every housewife knows that, rendering lard, taking and uh, trying out. The whale men would take great piece, the great pieces of blubber from the whale, they would cut it off and put them in these great big pots called tripods, and they would had a fire under the tripods, and they boil and the um, and the oil would come out and uh, be decanted and this this whole business was called trying out well, you see when melville came to write moby dick he remembered his own experiences he he read books on whaling he read about five or six books very closely on whaling then he read other general books shakespeare and uh, the bible and all of these he were like pieces of blubber to him from which he extracted the oil he wanted for his illumination his light in Moby Dick, the fiction so of Moby Dick. So he was trying out much as the sailors do with the whale. Mm-hmm. He did with the whaling. That's right, and with, with, with the books. You see, it's a metaphor, and it's also that uh, it's a study of the compositional efforts. So trying in that sense, exploring. It's a double pun and a very appropriate metaphor. You, you speak of the whaling books he'd read, his own adventures, and then you mentioned Shakespeare and the Bible. Oh yes. Remember that passage on Nantucket, uh, Nantucket there? The whole thing is just full of biblical rhythms. It's, it sounds like a, uh, the man had steeped himself. Well, after all, the opening line, call me Ishmael. Ishmael, a biblical character. And it gives a tone to the whole book, that sense of wandering, of questing in the deserts of the world that Ishmael did in the Bible, Hagar and Ishmael. And every man's hand was against him, says the Bible. And here is Ishmael going out seeking something in the, in the wastes of the sea. A fantastic sermon. Oh, that a fantastic! Father of Napa, <laughs> the story of Jonah. In, you mind telling us in whaling that? metaphors, in, yes, the story of Jonah by an old uh, by an old whale man who become a minister in, in Nantucket before Ishmael takes off, and he hears this sermon in 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 the most racy metaphors, and yet so right, so so devout. There's not one bit of blasphemy or sacrilege in it. It's appropriate, and it was very daring, though, of Melville to do that in that time. He had, of course, a model in mind. There was a man named Father Taylor who attracted attention. Dickens and Emerson both thought a great deal of him. Uh, He was a a, a sailor preacher who used this kind of daring imagery, and uh, Melville was obviously 
modeling Father Mapple on Father Taylor. Or was he? Yeah. He would use the actual language of the sailors, yes. the language of yes. his parishioners. That's right. Uh, to and of course, uh, using the uh, in, in giving a lecture on the significance of Jonah, the uh, which is of course a wonderful subject for ministers in all history. I mean, ever since the Bible, uh, the uh, Melville very tactfully, you see, used the uh, actual whaling imagery for it. And uh, also, it's very appropriate since he's writing a whaling book. There's so many moving passages in Moby Dick, aside from the metaphorical aspects yeah. involved. And if you don't mind, there's one spot I'm very moved in the reading of it, and so on one of the programs, as a lead into a lullaby, a, a, a sea lullaby, the Nantucket lullaby. Oh, yes. Starbuck, the spot where Starbuck urges, the first mate urges Captain Ahab, the man, to turn back. Yes. To give it up. Turn, turn back, back, old man. Yes, and it seems as though he's about to, too. But that's something. So that one spot, if we may, just... Oh, surely this would be fun. Melville, uh, perhaps more eloquently than anyone else, evokes the feeling of a whaler's longing for home. As in Moby Dick, Starbuck, the first mate, a Quaker from Nantucket, pleads with Captain Ahab to turn back from his crazy chase. And for a moment, it seems the bedeviled captain will do so. Starbuck is overjoyed. Oh, my captain, noble soul, grand old heart after all. Why should anyone give chase to that hated fish? How cheerily, how hilariously, oh, my captain, would we bowl on our way to see old Nantucket again. I think, sir, they have such mild days, even as this in Nantucket. They have, they have, I've seen them. Some summer days in the morning, about this time, yes. It is his noon nap now. My boy vivaciously awakes, sits up in bed, and his mother tells him of me, old cannibal me. Oh, I'm abroad a on the deep, and will soon come back to see him dance again. This my Mary, my Mary herself, and she promised that my boy every morning should be carried to the hill to catch the first glimpse of his father's sail. It is done for Nantucket. Come, my captain, study out the course and let us away. See? See the boy's face from the window, the boy's hand on the hill. But Ahab's glance was averted. Like a blighted fruit tree, he shook and cast his last cindered apple to the soil. Conceivably, Mrs. Starbuck sang a lullaby to the boy, a Nantucket lullaby. Hush, the waves are rolling in. White with foam, white with foam. Father tolls amid the din while baby sleeps at home. Mm -hmm. Hush, the ship rides in the gale. Where they roam, where they roam, Father seeks the roving whale, but baby sleeps at home. There, the, the idea of uh, his reading is something you, you were. I know you were, as you listened, you were intrigued. You well, the lang uh, the, when you were reading the yeah. passage, uh, Melville's own music, uh, the, his, his poetic uh, use of language, uh, the boy vivaciously awakes. 
Never noticed that before, but it's very fine, vivaciously awake. It's pushing language rather hard, the way Shakespeare pushed it at times. And when I, when I heard Arthur... Pushing language, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's what he does, and the, the, the first-rate poet does this. When I heard uh, Arson Wells' version of Moby Dick in London, he did a stage version for a short run, and it was very impressive because Arson Wells was playing Ahab and really giving the way Arson Wells gives in his language, and you heard the, the, the Shakespearean grandeurs in this work, and you realize that uh, even in terms of its language, it has, a, it has a poetic largeness. And I think the whole work is a tremendous poem, a, a great narrative poem, and uh, although, uh, granted, it is prose. I'm using the word poem, of no, course, very largely, freely. poetry. But the, the language is used in the poetic manner. Since you've mentioned Wells uh, doing Ahab in the London production, remember he did Maple yes. in the, the film, uh, perhaps your feelings, <laughs> you, you might, uh, since the film is not being played today, uh, I know we talked about earlier, you were a little disappointed, in, as I was. What happened? You were thinking how, how well, I powerful this could have been. I want to qualify what I said yes. against the film. It, it is incidentally been, and this has surprised me, been very good box office, that uh, they are holding it back and going to give it another run. I've, I heard this. Mm -hmm. This is rumor only. But that it had a, they, they think it had a great success. I hadn't thought it would myself, partly because of my own disappointment. Well, mm -hmm. my disappointment, I think, uh, and the people I know who were also disappointed, lies in the character of Ahab. I don't think it was portrayed with the proper strength and fury and madness. And well, the actor wasn't strong enough. No, he wasn't, no. They case. should have had Orson Welles. Or, or, or as you suggested, Walter Houston. Wa uh, the director's father, the director's Walter father. Houston, when, uh, a New England figure, you know. Oh, so he, he would have been tremendous supreme. in it. And really done it, and then you would have had a masterpiece because it was uh, the uh, sea. The sea hunt was handled with great skill. It's exciting the chase of that Technically, old yes. plastic whale. But the idea of Ahab, uh, the conflict, uh, the 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 antagonist and the protagonist should be equal in strength oh, or close. You know, if you have a man opposing yeah, yeah, the sea, yeah, the elements, yeah. the great whale himself, yeah. you've got to have a man of force. You can't have a man who say, "I'm going to catch that whale and slap his <laughs> slap him if I find him." That does that's not doing it. The, Since uh, you've mentioned uh, the whale again i know it's hard to leave the book yes. hard, uh, earlier before we went on you were discussing the chapter the whiteness of the whale uh the many references he makes to every a aspect poem. of the whole thing's a poem Re read the thing in terms of the motion of the, the sentences they move along singingly and yet without uh, without being uh, uh, obtrusive that way and yet they are packed with allusions to everything he can think of in terms of whiteness that to show that these things are uh, the white is complexly symbolical and uh, it was fun chasing down a lot of those identifications and allusions. And uh, in, in your work, the trying out of Moby Dick, you you just thoroughly yes the uh, the the uh, chasing down of the whiteness of the whale I I did in another book an addition which uh, Luther Mansfield and I did. We had 300 pages of notes for Moby Dick. It's a it's an addition to end all editions, perhaps overly edited, but we intended to do it that way anyhow. Try to see all we find out all we could. But in no in the trying out, I tried to find out everything he had read and knew about whaling. I read everything on whaling that Melville had read, plus a lot of more, lot more that he hadn't read, to see how authoritative he was uh, at the time he wrote. And he was authoritative. He, he knew what he was writing about. And granted, there were things he didn't know about the whale, but nobody else knew them. No, and this, there's still people don't know, uh, scientists don't know a lot of things about the whale. They're, they've learned a lot in the last 20 years, but we don't know a lot. And think of the whale, too, I suppose, that Moby Dick has helped us in thinking of the, of the, of the whale, the, the symbol of the whale itself. The, oh, nobody the, can talk about a whale now yeah. without saying Moby Dick, yeah. can he? 
25 years ago you could, but now you, you, whale is Moby Dick, or Moby Dick is whale. With and you think of Melville again and his uh, being, not obsessed, don't get me obsessed, being impressed with, with the battle between good and evil, yes. almost everything. Yes. Uh, Billy Budd, for example, I know you, you, you saw the play. Yes. Yes, the opposition there of Claggart and uh, and the good innocent person. Well, the complexity of of good and evil too. Um, there, uh, Melville was in opposition to the Emersonian optimism or the optimism in the air, which Emerson seemed to be a representative. Mind you, he admired Emerson too, but he objected to the simple-minded view that everything was good and ended in goodness. And when he said, "Imagine uh, this sort of thing to a man who's been around the horn." You see, uh, the, uh, the uh, Cape, Cape Horn, where you had the elements and the rage and the fury of nature. Nature isn't just naturally good. Nature is just itself. And uh, uh, the, uh, what, whether good or evil come out of uh, the experience depends upon the participant, the actor in it. This is your existential point of view, in existence, you see. And, but uh, evil can come out and will come out of it. It's as in, it's inherent in the universe as good. If I follow you, perhaps some listeners <laughs> would like, since you've mentioned the existentialist point of view, is it the individual, if I, uh, 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 do I interpret this correctly? Well, uh, you spoke of nature being both good and evil, depending on how it's used or how it's approached. Yes. What about, uh, the, is it the human the human being now, the individual, is that it? or uh, he's, uh, he's concerned with the individual uh, in the chaos of the sea, in the chaos of experience. What he makes out of the sea is what, well, when Ishmael falls into the sea and, and then decides, well, is this the way the whale fishery is? Well, I'll make my will and just accept things as they are for the best. It's a joking way of saying, I accept the universe. Remember when Margaret Fuller, uh, somebody told Emerson that Margaret Fuller said she decided to accept the universe, and Emerson said, well, by gad, she'd better. <laughs> well, the um, same thing goes for uh, Ishmael. Melville jokingly says that Ishmael's decided to accept the universe. People had better. Uh, he had a, a kind of um, uh, an old view, a Gnostic view, which re uh, a Zoroastrian view, which, regard, uh, which held that there were two principles in the universe, a principle of light and a principle of dark, a principle of good, a principle of evil. And they both operated, neither one dominant over the other. And they, they fluctuated and moved inside of experience, and uh, rather than the idea of Emerson's oversoul, which was all goodness, and therefore the world was all good, and evil was just a mirage. As Melville says in a later place, those people who regard as pain is but a tickle. Mm. <laughs> well, pain is more than a tickle. Mm. Yeah. Melville is not really, as he's been described, a dark pessimist. No, he's, he's not. He's just a man looking. He, at but he's not, he's no optimist. He's no optimist either. He, he, he's grim. He has his grim points. And, uh, but on the other hand, the, uh, he's not uh, completely, life, life is the best thing we have after all, is what he's saying. And we are going to live it. And uh, you have Billy Budd, which is a, somebody has called his testimony of acceptance. He accepts. He doesn't say it's all sweetness and light. But at the same time, there it is. And uh, we must live with it. And there are things to be rested from experience, which are good and satisfying. Sort of hard-eyed affirmation. That's, a, that's a good way of putting <laughs> it. Uh, you have mentioned uh, my favorite woman in American literature a while back. You mentioned Margaret Fuller. It's <laughs> uh, empowering. Remember this? I, I never forgot her ever since this chapter. Of her. Oh, yes. And yes. I'm surprised more hasn't been written. Uh, I mean, there have been some biographies. Yes, there have been some biographies uh, of Wade Fuller. No so. Margaret Fuller. My, uh, she's about the greatest conversationalist country ever had. Oh, she's an amazing, amazing creature. Of course, she appears, uh, and if people would read Hawthorne more, Hawthorne. they would see her in uh, the, um, you know, the, uh, the Blythdale Romance, Blythe Zenobia in Blythdale and Romance. She took off on the Brook Farm. Yeah, the Brook Farm business, surely. Oh, she was, uh, she was an incredible person. 
And uh, one of the glories of after all of our history, we have a number of characters who didn't hesitate to be something. And this whole period that Melville's writing about, the 1840s, you see, is a great age of individualism. And Emerson was a great, uh, was a great uh, a theorizer about individualism and self-reliance. So that Moby Dick, one way of interpreting Moby Dick is to see it as an analysis of the nature of what constitutes individualism, the self. Ahab is a rampant ego, you see. He, he says, I'm going to do this. I pay no attention to the society, to the Starbucks of the world, to the realities of economics, of catching other whales. I'm going to catch the white whale. He destroys the whole ship, uh, the, his world, by doing the sort of thing that a Hitler and Stalin. He's not saying that Ahab is good. Melville's not saying Ahab is good. He's not saying he's evil. That the hero and the saint, or the hero has sometimes to do, be foolish. It has to do something which is There's a devil in him, the Dybbuk in him. Yeah, that's right. And you have Fidala there, remember, who is the extended shadow mm -hmm. of Ahab, is the satanic side of the book. But um, the um, that's one kind of individualism. And you have other aspects of individualism in uh, examined in Moby Dick. The whole... Uh, all the mates. Starbuck is one kind of character, the Christian, the practical good man Christian, but lacking lacking drive and will. He will not dare to oppose. He has too much respect for the order of, of society. And so you have that tension. You have, you have Flask, who is just stupid, unthinking, hedonist, if you wish. Stubb, who is a tough, hard, bitten, but will not examine things because it just doesn't pay to. You'll see too much. Just keep your mm -hmm. mind closed and go ahead and your do your shut, job. Yeah. Yeah, be stubby. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, so, you see, he's an analyzing. And Ishmael, you notice, is very neutral. Ishmael is every man. Ishmael, we don't know his character precisely, but he is fluid, and he is what uh, the potential. And these are different forms of... Uh, this is marvelous. Aren't you the, giving us this picture of really of all sorts of individuals in society, the different ones. Yes. Oh, it, Perhaps this, too, I suppose, is one of the key reasons for the revival. It is, it is. It is. I'm sure it is. In this age of what we call conformity more and more. That's right. Oh, yes. The appeal of praise to the individual. Yes, you know. exactly, exactly. But how far can you be an individual, yeah, you see? Uh, yeah. You've got society, and there's a, um, there's a very fine um, chapter in a book that nobody reads called Pierre by Melville. It's a mad kind of book, and yet in, when Melville's mad, he's interestingly mad. And in this is this uh, very fine sermon, Chrono, Horologicals and Chronometricals, in which he opposes heavenly time, the stars and so on, against man's clocks. In other words, it's an opposition of absolute principles against expediencies of society demanded by society. And in Billy Budd, he seems to come to the conclusion society has its claims and we cannot ignore them.